podcast one production. Eighteen eighty six. That was the year that the car, as we sort of kind of know it was born. It was the year that Carl Benz started producing his Benz patent Motorwagen. Looking more like an oversized tricycle than a car, it was nevertheless the beginning of a new epoch, one which would come to be defined by the phenomenal freedoms offered by the personal car. It was actually Carl Benz's wife, Bertha, that showed just how massive the potential for this device would be by taking the first long-distance car trip, covering 194 kilometres on one of her husband's little trikes. Benz made 25, and all of a sudden, the car was a thing. But it wasn't until Ransom Olds with stationary mass production in 1901, and of course Henry Ford with moving mass production in 1913, that cars started becoming available to the middle classes, and their world-changing impact really started to be felt. This, of course, was the world of the Ford Model T, built from 1908 to 1927. Now, if it's safe for you to do so, I want you to close your eyes for a second. Imagine a horse and a carriage. A horse up front, maybe four if you're feeling fancy, and some kind of open or enclosed space for a happy family or thrusting merchant behind. Now, switch out the horse or horses for a motor, petrol, diesel, or even electric, and what you have is the modern car, the horseless carriage. Now, take a look on the street around you and the cars driving on it. Bar a few exceptions, cars are still horseless carriages. Engine up front, people out the back, and in between the two, a dashboard, some instrumentation, and some controls for direction and velocity. The fact is, we've been building cars, give or take a few minor variations, to the same template for over 100 years. Depending on where you are in the world, we still even talk about horsepower as the defining indicator of a vehicle's performance. Now, of course, the styling has changed to reflect the era in which the cars were produced. American cars of the 1950s, think Cadillac, reflected post-war optimism. Fins reached for the skies, tail lamps looked like jets, and there were thrusting conical bumpers named Dagmars after a female television celebrity. By the 1960s and 70s, the rationality of modernism defined the European aesthetic. Large expanses of glass, restrained ornamentation, and the idea that a brand's design should feel part of a well-ordered system prevailed. Brands like Mercedes and BMW excelled during this time and beyond. And then, reeling from the shock of the oil crisis of the late 70s, and with customers demanding better fuel economy, the industry embraced the aero aesthetic. Slim lights, low nose, high tail, flush glass all subtle indicators that your car was going to slip less fuel than before. Ford's Taurus and Sierra basically defined the template for the 80s. Of course, with every manufacturer applying the same rules to achieve their aerodynamic efficiency, it's no wonder that this was the era when all cars looked the same would become a common refrain. 
The financial crises of the late 80s and the 90s saw designers looking backward, reviving and reinterpreting looks from more confident times. The Audi TT and Volkswagen New Beetle referencing the racing and industrial might of Germany, while cars like the Ford Mustang and Chrysler 300C took folks back to the passionate petrol hittery of hot rods and pony cars. And it was there we kind of stopped. Once upon a time, car designers could look to jet travel, space programs, modular architecture systems, and other physical manifestations of progress to find ways to reflect modern culture in the physical design of their products. Now, we live in an age where so much is defined by what we can't see or feel. Seven nanometer computer chips, blockchain, networks, metadata, the glassy slab of your smartphone that reveals nothing about how it works. So it's no wonder that car design is in a bit of a funk. It's hard to know what to latch onto. And that's before you even get to thinking about the challenges of owning and using a car in rapidly expanding urban areas, or the increasing financial burden of car ownership, or the emergence of mobility as a service, which sees cars shared rather than owned, or electrification, or somewhere in the future, autonomy. But with constraints comes creativity. With the right frame of mind, this era, right now, could prove to be one of the most creative in the history of the car. And in this episode, we speak to the people who are lighting the way, quite literally, for the next billion cars. Hi, I'm special correspondent Drew Smith. And follow me on this episode of The Next Billion Cars as I discuss some of the challenges of designing for the future with Chris Bangle. Mark Pesci talks to Ford design legend Elizabeth Barron about designing for a range of human bodies in reality and virtual reality. And co-host Sally Dominguez looks at how one Aussie startup envisages future fleets of driverless service vehicles. How does it feel? And how do car makers create that feeling? That's the question we're feeling our way towards on this episode of The Next Billion Cars. Okay, it's time to come clean. When Mark said that car design sort of stopped in the 2000s, we weren't being entirely straight with you. For 10 years, give or take, from 2001, one of the most conservative, rational brands in the automotive industry, BMW, shared the fruits of a radical transformation with a disbelieving public. The design chief who oversaw this Cambrian explosion of postmodern creativity? Chris Bangle. While the vehicles produced under his nurturing gaze were divisive, they represented the first and perhaps only mainstream challenge to the hegemony of car design as we know it. They were still horseless carriages, it was BMW after all, but they really stretched our thinking about what a German luxury or sports car could be. The luxury 7 Series went from low-slung and sporty to upright, open and big-booted, like a formal carriage, to better show off the newly rich Chinese customers riding in the back. New metal pressing technologies allowed panels to be creased with incredible precision, which encouraged light to dance across them in unusual ways, a look that came to be known as flame surfacing, you might know it from the Z4 Roadster and Coupe. BMW even made the X5, their first SUV. Then, in 2009, Chris left BMW to establish his own design studio, Chris Bangle Associates, 
and he largely disappeared from view. For many, it felt like the future of car design died a little bit. Fast forward to 2017 and the industry is abuzz with news that Chris has been helping a Chinese company develop a radical new urban car. Launched at the LA show that year, the red space was an indicator of just how far Chris and his team could go with a car when the shackles came off. Designed, and here's the critical bit, from the inside out for a congested Chinese megacity, the red space is as divisive to traditional car designers as any of Chris's previous work. But when I read that Chris described the process that led to the red space as designing a space that decided to become a car, I knew I had to interview him for the next billion cars. We got into the meat of our conversation by exploring how the team got started with the project, with research about how people use the space inside cars. Yeah, that's what we we, we discovered during the process of it. Uh, we started out more geared on how do we do a car for the mega cities that leverages other things other than uh, high speed because that didn't seem to make any sense. And along the way, as we did the research into the, the actual customers themselves, this phenomenon of the forced space began to emerge. And that, um, in a certain sense, until you have physical mock-ups in which you can actually sit in and try things out, you don't really get an understanding for what space can mean to you. And the, the more it became real and uh, things that we could actually flop around and move the seats around and, and kick back in as we felt like, the more that idea that, you know what, this is the actual USP of the car, how you actually can adapt it to your own needs and not filling it full of cup holders or or things like that, that came out at that phase. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's space is something, if you don't experience it, you don't know how to design it. One of the, one of the, the, the little video clips that I like to show of Reds is uh, a young lady getting in and out of it when it's parked. Because when you sit in the car, your eye height is the same as an SUV, like my X6, my BMW X6 that I drive. You're at that eye height when you're driving it. But on almost all the SUVs like my car, uh, my BMW, when I get in and out of it, I get the back of my pants dirty. It's just inevitable I'm going to do that. And and that really upsets everybody. That You know, my wife, everybody, they all get pissed about that. And in this car, we didn't tell this lady anything about getting in and out. We just said, okay, just pull up, park, and hop out and shut the door. So she does, but when you freeze frame it, you can just see how much space there is between her leg and the actual car. She doesn't come anywhere close to touching it. And it's just because of the natural way you would get out of a car in, with this type of a configuration. And it, completely unforeseen as, a, as an advantage. But when I show that to an audience, let me tell you, there's a, there's a big reaction on that because we all have those problems. You, what you come back down to is the idea, who are we designing for? An, an idealistic world in which we want to adapt ourselves or a real world in which we'd like it to adapt to us? We then strayed into territory that's deeply personal for me. As a design researcher, I want to know what's really holding back many car manufacturers from taking this human-centered approach to designing the cars of the future, from making sure that we're asking and answering the right questions, and not just perpetuating the way we've always done things. To me, it feels like fear of change. But Chris had another perspective to add. I have a lot of discussions with, uh, with people about this. Uh, 
And uh, my son brought up a point to me. My, my son, Derek, is, is actually doing his doctor's uh, studies now, his doctorate studies in uh, car design as it relates to design history and design criticism. And he tell, told me something very interesting. He said um, that this entire culture of car design is a very tacit knowledge based. It's, it's only passed on basically by working next to someone who is a working car designer and absorbing how it is done. The, um, the, the, there is no real literature on it. There are no textbooks. There's no licensing groups. There's no board of approvals. There is no, there's no professional culture per se. It's a tacit culture. And because of that, it's a culture that can very easily say, you don't belong to us. You know, because there's nothing to demonstrate. I don't have a piece of paper that says I am one, you know, like a doctor. I don't hang a, a medical license on my wall. You're either part of the group or you're not part of the group. And when the group has a fear to, to change anything that puts itself into question, for sure, anybody who wants to belong to that group is not going to bring in any challenges. You're going to do your best just to try and conform. And I think that you know, the idea that the, one of the problems of, of car design is it's being taught by car guys to people who want to be car guys. So how on earth do you expect them to bring in a new idea? This is kind of a fundamental uh, challenge within the system itself. So because Chris is nominally a car guy, I wanted to explore his thoughts on automakers transitioning into the role of service providers. I mean, I would argue that it's not rocket science, but it is plumbing. Uh, because if you look at uh, many of the challenges that are in front of us, they all they all uh, stumble over, uh, you know, like, for instance, autonomous cars or things like that or, or services like who cleans it? You know, and I mean, we've managed to put everything in a car except the toilet. So if that's, you know, the next frontier, then truly it isn't rocket science. It really is plumbing. There's something about where our, our interaction with the world of uh, living a life uh, instead of just going from A to B comes into cars that um, if they want to compete with uh, airlines and you know what, funny enough, every airplane does have a toilet and they, yeah, sorry, it is so. And, and if they want to compete with trains and things like that, and funny enough, trains have an enormous amount of service personnel on board, you know, walking around asking if you want a snack and stuff like that. They're getting into a world where it's, it's again, it's not rocket science what we're talking about, but it isn't easily transferable into, as you mentioned before, the scalable type of non-human based uh, production that they've come to perfect. And that is a big challenge. So, are traditional car companies up to the challenge? I'll hand over to Chris to describe the road ahead as he sees it. What we tell our clients, because we do a lot of design consultancy for people on you know, management and how to deal with, with creatives for your, the future of your company, is we always begin with what is the vision that you want to achieve and why are you doing what you're doing? The critical question, why you do what you do, drives how you do it. And then in turn, the two of those together turn out what it is you do. You know, the, the what is just the, the confirmation that the how you do things and the why you do it make a culture that is worth having a product from. And I think that why question is really where most companies stumble. The vision of the future they feel is out of their control. Um, uh, the world, in a certain sense, 
doesn't want it to be directed towards visions. They want them to just pop up uh, ad hoc and then, you know, let the best one win, as is kind of the case in, you know, the whole world of startups. It's, uh, you know, they resent, the world resents greatly if they're, they feel they're being maneuvered into a condition. They would rather let the condition arise spontaneously and then we all decide this is the one we want. So it's very, very difficult for uh, a large company to, to have a vision that in any way, shape or form implies that they need to take control of the future themselves. It's just, it's just, it's just somehow sounds politically incorrect. Unfortunately, without that, how on earth do you direct your resources and your investment? I mean, if you look at just the whole move from internally combustion engine vehicles to uh, electric vehicles, you're having a turnover in the type of engineering staff you need, the, the type of skill sets you need, which is super dramatic. You're having a, a, a major turnover in what is innovation in the vehicle. Like it isn't uh, another set of cylinders this year, and it isn't reducing the the gasoline consumption or the CO two uh, production by X. It's a completely different set of parameters, and so you begin looking at it from a, a broad perspective, and you say, "Well, wait a minute. If anybody can do this, why are we different? Where's the advantage on this?" This is one of the reasons why, um, in particular, we in our, in our studio here we're very interested in robotics. And in uh, mechatronics in that sense, because to me, this is a huge blue ocean still out there to be tapped into to see how this can uh, increase the, 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 the type of quality of experience that what's traditionally been known as a car has to offer. But, you know, if, if you're a car company where you don't look outside your, your normal boundaries and the only thing you can see is, well, in Silicon Valley, they have a startup here on how to park cars or something. We should drag that into our system, too, and we'll have that, too, and we'll call ourselves service company. I guess that's where your vision ends. It's clear that we have a vision problem in the automotive industry, one that's preventing traditional manufacturers from creating and claiming the future that could be theirs. Our next guest has been dealing with a vision problem of a completely different type, and one that's close to Mark's wonderfully geeky heart. Thanks, Drew. Automotive design has always been presented as very physical. Paper mock-ups, clay models, concept vehicles, they all speak to the very long history of the car as a physical object. But the world today is more than physical. It's pervaded by data, and that data is intensely valuable to automakers. So how do you marry that data with design? That is the question that obsessed Elizabeth Barron across her 30-year career at Ford. By the time of her retirement last year, Barron had transformed the entire design process for Ford's automobiles, marrying the real to the virtual in a way that brought out the best qualities of both. One of the things she learned way back in the beginning of that process is that it's never all about one or the other, real or virtual. Real and virtual are solutions, and sometimes they're ways of working around problems. Sally and I sat down with Elizabeth Barron at the Detroit Auto Show, and Barron recounted one of her first experiences of this hybrid approach to design. So way back in the day when I first started working on uh, VR, uh, the tracking for understanding where you are in the environment was magnetic. And so you, which means you can't have metal in the environment and uh, vehicles are made out of metal. So that posed a small problem. <laughs> and so our, the solution was to build this custom wooden 
vehicle. <laughs> and it was a thing of beauty. It was made out of oak and mahogany, and it was uh, incredibly in- adjustable. So it could be a very small car. It could be a large carrier van, and it could uh, also adjust to so that we could simulate uh, a small a small female could be a tall male or a tall male could be a small female. I totally need to see this thing. Oh, Do we have photos? It, Are we allowed to no, see yeah, it? Yeah, I have photos <laughs> of it and I wish I it, it actually I put it in the scrap heap when I was done with it and I, I just think that was a huge mistake. It belongs in a museum. It was awesome. It was a work of craftsmanship. It was custom built by the uh, you know the uh, wood shop folks at um, Ford, and it was a thing of beauty. But it was um, a little bit before its time because the the I, I think that the the vision that I had, the technology was surely not ready for what I thought the technology could do and be. So yeah, this wood car was uh, um, it was a thing of beauty. But but we got in it. We made some good evaluations, and we started laying that um, foundation. And um, it was incredibly useful. Okay, so we now have this idea of being able to have simulations that go back and forth on both sides. So, so there's a simulation that's in wood and there's a simulation that's in bits. Are we going to see the future sort of be a bit of both of those where we're actually going to still rely on physical models because they help us, because we can touch them, because we can interact with them? Actually, I think that future is now. And the reason... Why is, first of all, tracking technology is awesome, so metal, no problem. But the other thing is um, all additive manufacturing and 3D printing, um, small uh, devices that you can make actionable. So now the whole world of immersion is opened up to being able to act and do and create and build anything. So now you can you know, go 3D print some uh, part and then make it function in the virtual world. So I think the high tech and... Uh, medium tech and low tech solutions are all a viable part of creating an amazing, uh, robust experience because you need to be physically connected to your environment for you to believe it's real. You can't be floating in space and disconnected. This is what's so fascinating is people used to travel and gather at the design studio and or the factory. Now we have this centralised vision, this this virtual meetup of all the key players. They could be physically anywhere in the world, but virtually meeting up. But then decentralised manufacturing mm-hmm. means they could each print out their tiny little model at scale from that central vision. Right. It's got completely inverting the traditional process of car design. Exactly. And you could have somebody in Germany and then somebody in Australia, and they could physically be seated in a vehicle in their own positions, touching things and interacting, but they're continents apart. That's absolutely doable right now. The penny drop moment for Ford came when they had a team in the U.S. who wanted to collaborate with a team in Australia. Now, that's a long way to fly for a design review. So Barron suggested that there might be another way to get the groups collaborating in virtual reality. This was during the time when we were really trying to attack things problem by problem. And so the, the issue was uh, there was a team in Australia designing part of a vehicle. I'm pretty sure it was a Ranger. And then in the States, a team that was working on Ranger as well. And so I had heard that they 
we're going to send a contingent of people to Australia to look at this problem. So I asked, can we do an immersive review and give it a go? You know, absolutely, let's give it a try. And it was so successful that they were able to connect in this environment, find some problems, find solutions, and, and work together. And they had many follow-up reviews. And then the, the end result of that was that the way that that review went became mainstream, and it actually became part of the process. And, and now you cannot produce a vehicle at Ford without going through an immersive reviews as part of that process. It's funny also because um, I find living in the States that Americans have such an aversion to that trip to Australia. They feel like that's a really long flight. It is. And isn't it funny? I'll bet you that played a huge part in that team going, we should try this. Just yeah. that basically, I don't know, I used to do it every month, so I don't find it that bad, but... But that human thing of we don't want to have to go that far. Yeah, we'll give it a go. And now it's become the norm. Right. It's possible. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. We have that moment. And that's, I guess the interesting thing is that's going to be a when it changed moment about design. Because as we've seen from what's going on now at Nissan, that that's now also operating practice for them. Are we at a point now, have we passed a point where automotive design is fundamentally virtual and then only pops up into reality when it needs to, or is it still going to be working from the real and then popping into the virtual, or is that now just a, just not even the wrong way to think about it? Well, yeah, not sure that's the best way to think of it, because I think there will, until we can get to a point where we can feel we will always need physical. We, we see with our hands. We really do. You feel something and then your mind's eye takes over. So the, the physical models have a definite part in that process. And because we're physically connected to the vehicles that we're in, we'll always need to be physically connected in the virtual world. But I see uh, as time marches on and capabilities increase, so much more potential to have experiences. And I think what's changing is we're taking the immersive realities from uh, mere like problem by problem, solution to solution, and we're moving it into experience. And so now it's about story and we're putting the customer into that. And then no matter what your product is, you can put the customer in it, engage that, and then always have the customer's view represented. And that's really where the technology is going next. We'll be hearing more from Elizabeth Barron in a later episode of The Next Billion Cars, where we open the door to a future where everyone, at least in theory, can become a car maker. For the time being, however, established designers will be crafting The Next Billion Cars. So co-host Sally Deminks met with some of the designers developing the most intriguing new concepts. Stuart Norris is General Motors' Director of Design for Advanced Mobility and Experience. He believes autonomous is a bigger change in human interaction with mobility than that transition from horse and carriage to horseless carriage. While cars of the future are still directional with their seating, assuming people still want to face in the direction they're travelling, the removal of the driver along with the steering wheel means even getting in and out of the car becomes, as Stuart says, a different ball of wax. If we don't have our eyes on the road and our hands upon the wheel, what are we doing? As an architect, I've always battled with designing buildings from the inside out versus the outside in. You want to accommodate all the needs of the occupants, but if you don't carefully consider the visuals and the massing of the exterior of a building, it ends up an amorphic mess. And people really care. 
So the new dilemma of the car designer translating a new interior experience into some kind of relevant exterior form really resonates with me. I ask questions like, if there's no driver focus, is there even such a thing as a sports car? What is the perfect number of people in a car? Have we seen the last of the two-seater car? Are we all going to be travelling in limo style or will it be more like a bus? Do we even want to be sitting when we could be lying down or swinging or standing? And do we need to use the same rigid materials and construction for the same old crash tests when in this near future our driverless cars are apparently not going to crash? And do we suddenly not care what we roll up in? Or is the car that delivers us still part of our overall style narrative? Luciana Nakamura is the head of design for Aussie startup AEV, and he is re-envisioning driverless service vehicles in cities. I spent a lot of years in design and exploring new ideas for the future of transport. And uh, we saw a big opportunity uh, that, the, you know, the, the industry was changing. People are hoping for new solutions. The cities are getting very crowded. And we thought of uh, this new concept. It's a, a, what could be uh, a car of the future for the city of the future, somewhere, something that would create an environment of inviting people, where people are comfortable, where people are not scared, you know, big cars honking to each other, you know, the crazy traffics. What, what could be a product that could help create this new city, a city be, where everybody wants to live in? Uh, so we thought about uh, the right size, we thought about the right speed. And when you create something specific to, to certain work, you make something very efficient. Um, so our design uh, philosophy, it, it is really about simplicity, functionality. Uh, we also don't want to make something like an appliance. We want to make something that excites, it feels friendly, uh, it feels uh, strong. Uh, you know, we did spend time with custom, potential customers with specific applications. Uh, so we went through seriously on how this thing would really, really work. Uh, I think uh, what we, we want to stand out for is that, you know, a lot of people are dreaming and have visions of the future. We think we found a way to make this real, to make this uh, a, re a reality. You know, the, the platform that we created, the chassis, creates great freedom to explore the whole space. Um, again, you know, we wanted to, to, to make sure they have maximum functionality, but obviously, you know, have uh, the beauty of a, a design quality. Uh, you know, we do think people will appreciate that in a, you know, in a modern city, uh, in a smart city. So uh, design for us, it is a key ingredient, you know, to make sure uh, we have a great product. Designers are the connective tissue between seriously pointy-end tech, autonomous driving, morphing materials, connected vehicles, artificial intelligence and humans. We're only just starting to see this new vision of how our future driving tech will integrate with human needs and aesthetics. So, Drew, as a car designer, where do you see the most exciting potential in the cars of the future? Sal, it's such a fantastic question. And for me, really, it's about the coming together of two worlds that I've been passionate about for a really long time. And that is the world of traditional car design. How do you produce objects that have phenomenal uh, kind of emotional appeal? 
Um, and this idea of, of human-centered design, how do we create products that are much more targeted to the needs of, of the people for whom we're designing? And as Chris pointed out during our interview, that presents a, a fundamental challenge to the way that we've designed cars for a really long time. And I think we're going to see a lot more products over the next billion cars being designed just as Chris's Red Space was from the inside out. But this, as we've discussed, it presents a fundamental challenge to the way that we do things. So, Drew, part of what I'm starting to see here, though, if you design a car from the inside out, is that you're designing a car for the many different kinds of passengers and jobs. Elizabeth Barron designed this wooden seat that could fit many different sizes of bodies. Are we going to start to see the cars become so specific to the person who's using that car and to the task that this idea of a mass-produced car starts to sort of vaporize in all of these, we we don't call them options anymore, but all of these different, I guess, floor plans and reasons for a car? Yes, I think you're right, Mark. Um, But Also, I think we're going to see cars become fundamentally much more accommodating of some of uh, what we in the design world called edge cases, but are actually really important users to consider. So people, for example, who may have limited mobility, right? So we're going to see vehicles that are going into shared ecosystems that are going to be much easier for people in wheelchairs, for example, or people on crutches to be able to access. Um, I think at the other end, what happens to things like sports cars? What happens to performance cars? And of course, this is something that we're going to discuss in a future episode. But I think there will be the opportunity for these kinds of vehicles to become ever more specialized and hopefully to maintain or even increase the level of excitement that we've had from those sorts of vehicles from the past decades. Can I throw it a little more radically than we're currently looking at this thing? Look, people, if we don't have a driver... And if we don't have the car the way we've always had it, and if the cars aren't going to crash like they used to, why are we even talking about sitting? What if we want to lie? What if we want to hang? What if we want to have like a full group around a lazy Susan? Like this right now is a complete redefinition of what it is to travel from A to B. And there's that Volvo concept car that came out last year that turned into a lying bit. I remember, Drew, that you actually sent me footage of this because you were at that introduction, right? Right, absolutely. And I think... All of this stuff is going to be possible, but the challenge that we're going to have is creating interior environments in vehicles that aren't just about lying, that aren't just about sitting around a lazy Susan. The fact is that these interiors are going to have to be adaptable on the fly to however the occupants want to use them. And that creates a big challenge for us from an automotive design perspective. We have to accommodate far more use cases than we've traditionally had to. Do you think it might be like, you know, currently now a parent rolls with a booster seat, right? And they put it in the car for their kid. Are we going to have people rolling with their own 3D printed, customised, whatever it is that comes in the car? Maybe the car itself is this service provider, is this subscription model, but maybe when we join the car, we have a little roll along that is our seat 
Well, and I think this is where Chris's point around the future of the automotive manufacturer as a uh, as a plumbing supplier or one of the big challenges that they have to work out is the plumbing. Like, are our customers actually weren't going to want to have to bring their roll along in order to be able to customize the interior of a vehicle that they don't own? My gut tells me that actually they're going to want that as part of the service. They're just going to expect the vehicle to be right for them when it turns up. So... Although the, the, the exterior shape of the vehicles may become more homogenized because, you know, they're all about maximizing the internal space rather than necessarily the aesthetics, the amount of optionality that we have to work into the interior of these things is going to increase exponentially. But I'm also wondering if some of that's not going to be task dependent. Like if Sal is going away skiing for the weekend, then that's a particular configuration and that's a big change to the car. But if it's just about getting to the office or taking the kids to school, then that's a much more generic configuration. And whether we're going to start to see either interiors or this, it's the chassis, right? The chassis then has these different sort of flexible configurations. And I guess, can we do any of this, Sally? Can we do any of this with any degree of safety? If we start sort of pulling the car apart and putting it back together again in all of these different ways, how can we be sure that someone isn't killed when it hits an object? Well, I think the plan is, the whole promise of autonomous driving is that it won't hit an object. It's not going to hit anything. And I mean, if you look at the stats that we're hearing, is this amazing, great, great driverless car tech is going to save us all from ourselves, means we're going to have no organs to donate, but it does mean we're going to get to places in one piece, which then starts opening up. You know, Chris Bangle once designed a car of fabric called Gina that had these sort of slits that opened and shut depending on what you wanted. I mean, if safety is changed so that we don't have the crumple zones we need when a human drives a car, that in itself opens up massive possibilities. And then, you know, I will just comment on this whole modularity thing. I mean, this is something architects have struggled with since the early 1920s, where they've gone, we need something that's adaptable. We need to be modular. We need this for the masses. I mean, what car designers are going through now, ironically, is what architects have grappled with with forever. And usually modularity like that ends up suiting nobody. And so it's a really tricky one. You can make everything so modular that it's great and adaptable, but is that what humans want? No, it's not. And maybe there's a middle road here because Sally at CES, you and I both saw that little Honda electric vehicle that was autonomous and was basically designed not to carry you, but to follow you. So that if you were a firefighter working on a fire trail way up in the hill somewhere, it would carry all your gear with you. And that's that middle road where it's still a vehicle. It's still doing the function of a car, which is to transport from one place to another. But it isn't necessarily the thing that you're driving around in. I mean, Drew, are we going to see a lot more of that going on? Yes, but I'd be surprised whether you see that from what I would call the, the mainstream OEMs, uh, because those sorts of products currently sit so far outside the comfort zone of kind of the design organizations of, of traditional OEMs. Honda is pretty unique in that respect. They've also always had this really wonderfully diversified product base, right? You can buy a lawnmower from them. You can buy a robot from them. Um, whereas, you know, like a Mercedes-Benz, they haven't really been in the robotic space. So asking them to extend into this new area is going to be a really big challenge for them. I've got another style question for both of you, but I'm going to hit Drew with it. Now, if you look at Red Space, 
work with me on this, it looks a bit like a cartoon car. I find most people's vision to the future, a couple with standing, a couple of them are sort of sexy and sleek and Tron and Robotica, but most of them seem to have gone back to the, like the whole Kia Soul box on wheels type situation, right? Where it's like cute and upright and quirky. Oh, mate, I'm not sold. Like I can totally see it as a city vehicle, but is that all we want or are we missing the excitement and the sexiness of like a really fast looking fabulous car? So the red space, as Chris makes very, very clear, was designed around a very pragmatic set of decisions. How do you maximise the utility of a very small footprint within an urban centre? In terms of its exterior aesthetic, one of the things that Chris has always been very, very keen on is imbuing his products with a sense of personality, love it or hate it, um, because it's actually through that love or hate that you start to build a bond with a product or you have the potential to build a bond. So look, Red Space is not to everybody's taste, but if you experience the inside of that vehicle, it doesn't really matter how it looks outside because you have this phenomenal space utilization that allows you to do pretty much whatever you want inside it. I just think, Sally, that you know you physically embodied this moment when we were at the Detroit Auto Show and we saw the concept car from Infinity that looked like a beautiful streamlined, it could have been from the 30s, it could have been from the 50s, it had a cockpit so pretty. with only one seat in it. And I'm like, it only has one seat. And you're like, yes, it only has one seat. That's part of our design language now. And maybe part of what we're saying about design is that Sense is not necessarily always sensible. Right. And Mark, I think, and Sally, actually, you want to talk about thrones in cars at the Paris Motor Show last year. uh, One of the, the big French manufacturers had produced this long, sleek, very low, enormously wheeled autonomous luxury pod. And sat right in the middle of that car was this throne. I mean, it was fit for a king. And of course... Uh, the brand's design chief uh, walked up to the car to prepare for a press interview. The cameras are on him. The crowds are stood around the car. And he literally falls backwards into the seat because the roof is so low. The seat is so far from the edge of the car. And I'm thinking, hot damn, nobody's actually thought about this. Nobody's actually thought about how the throne presents itself to the king. (laughs) So, you know, I think uh, these visions of long, low, sleek pods are fantastic and they get people kind of thinking about the future in a slightly different way. But the reality is we're not all built like that. We're not all built to access vehicles uh, that are are low-roofed and low-slung. So I guess one of the things that we're looking at here is a future that as we open this session with, uh, should be much more human-centered in its approach. There's a harsh reality here in that quite often automotive design is led by creative visionaries. These are people who have their very own understanding and quite unique understanding of what is right for the world. And as we discussed with Chris, uh, taking a human-centered approach means accepting that perhaps your view of the way things should be is not necessarily the right view. 
And I think we're going to see successful automotive designers, successful automotive design teams having to become much more humble about the reality of the world in which we now operate. I think humble's okay, but imagine a world without architects and what we'd be looking at in our infrastructure. Nevertheless, we have sorted design for now, but what about performance? Are we going to have an endlessly dull future of cars that never really deliver the thrill of acceleration? Or has electrification put some fun back in the drive? What will the road trip become? We'll put our pedal to the metal and find out on the next episode of The Next Billion Cars. The Next Billion Cars was written and presented by Mark Pesci, Sally Deminks and Drew Smith, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia, producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search the next billion seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci. And Sally Dominguez. And Drew Smith. Thanking you for listening. Listener.